Hello. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. We hope that you will be encouraged and it builds your faith. Thanks for listening. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, if you'll go to 1 Peter chapter 2 tonight. And uh, what I want to do is uh, last week, the last week we or two weeks ago, uh, I started talking a little bit about uh, the kingdom and uh, talked a little bit about the uh, God has given us dominion. And what does it mean to uh, live in the kingdom? What does it mean to have dominion? And I showed you through scripture that uh, the kingdom of God is, uh, is really not fighting for victory, but fighting from victory. We're already victors. The cross has already provided everything we need uh, for godliness and righteousness the blood of Jesus was sufficient. How many are grateful that the blood of Jesus is sufficient for us? And so uh, I talked about what it meant to occupy. You can turn me down just a little bit, Ron. Uh, what it meant to occupy. And that occupy was, it was a word of dominion. In other words, to carry on the affairs. To occupy means to carry on the affairs. It means to occupy till Jesus comes means that we walk in the victory that he has already paid for us. It is, a, it is, is to be kingdom-minded, not just church-minded or denomination-minded or religious-minded. It's to be kingdom-minded. And so, but I want to take that a little further tonight and the next couple of weeks, the next few weeks, I want to talk a little bit about the priesthood of the believer. And I want to talk about if we really understood the dominion that Christ really gave us, the price of his blood, and what he really has paid for us, we, uh, if we understood uh, what it means to be kings and priests unto our God, what it means to walk in victory and to have victory, uh, we would live at a real different level. And a lot of times we live far below what God what Jesus has paid the price for us to live. And, uh, and so I want to put in perspective uh, the priesthood of the believer. Uh, when you begin to talk about the kingdom, begin to talk about the priesthood of the believer, sometimes over a period of time, sometimes some of these messages and preaching has been abused. And so they, they can flow into what maybe sermons you've heard on uh, name it and claim it and all of the things that uh, uh, can, can go to the extreme on certain things. But I want to talk about the priesthood of the believer tonight. And I want to show you, uh, I want to lay some foundation for tonight. Because in order to understand what it really means to, be, uh, to live uh, as a king and priest, as, as live in the priesthood, to be someone... Uh, the Bible calls Jesus our great high priest. And so uh, if you'll turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, and I want to read a couple of verses there uh, to you, and then I'm going to read another passage of Scripture. We're going to look at a lot of Bible tonight, and I'm going to try to get as far as I can. I'm going to try to teach tonight and systematically walk us through this. And you just pray that I'm able to communicate to you what God has put on my heart or what God has showed me. I have spent a lot of time on this. And uh, matter of fact, I've spent more time on preparing these series of sermons than I've spent on anything uh, in a long time. 
And it's because I know I, I want you to get it. I want you to get a hold of it. I want it to get in your spirit tonight. And, uh, and I want us to live in a way to where we are people that live in victory and live on mission and know how to, to uh, win the lost, know how to teach the disciple, know how to send the called, know how to walk in spiritual confidence and how to build committed people for the kingdom of God. And so uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, some of you are very familiar with the scripture. Actually, look at verse 5, and then we're going to look at verse 9. Verse 5 says, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. Now, the scripture here calls us spiritual stones. And I've been preaching on Sundays out of the book of Nehemiah, rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the gates. And uh, on Nehemiah, uh, you will see that when the Bible calls us living stones, the very picture of the city of Jerusalem was surrounded by the rebuilding of those walls. And it is a great picture of God placing each stone in its right place. The gates represent the principles of God. And so when you look in Nehemiah chapter 3, and it talks about the different gates, there were eight gates, those eight gates represent, uh, or those ten gates represent spiritual principles. There's a spiritual principle behind each gate. But what held those gates up was the living stones, or the stones that were in place that allowed those gates to fortify and to be strong. That's why, just like the principles of Scripture has to be fortified by the living stones of the believers, that the believers being placed rightly in the body along the wall protects the house of God. And so here Peter says, you are living stones and are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, you are a spiritual house, you are living stones, and you are a, a, a holy priesthood. In other words, as a believer, we're a holy priesthood, the principle of holy priesthood. Offer up spiritual sacrifices that are offered to God uh, through Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Isn't that a great promise? It says you are a royal priesthood. That, that, is, the, that is a promise to the, to the New Testament believer that we are a royal priesthood, that we have been passed on, and that... Um, and if you, Romans chapter, you don't have to turn there, Romans chapter 1 and verse 6 tells us this. He has made us, he has made us kings and priests unto his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. He has made us kings and priests. So in scripture we know that God has attached to the believer that he has, he has uh, attached to us that we, the principle of priesthood should be a part of the value of our Christian life. Now, the priesthood is interesting because 
What does the Bible teach us about the priesthood? Matter of fact, if you look in the New Testament, there's very little about the priesthood in the New Testament. And so that brings me to a very important part. A lot of times we have a tendency to separate the Word of God from the Old and New Testament. That we think that the Old Testament is irrelevant, that it's out of date, that it's not relevant to us today. That is not true because we're always preaching that God has done away with the law. That's true. He has done away with the law. But there's more than just the law in the Old Testament. There's God's character. There's God's nature. There's God's moral law. All of those things carry over from the Old Testament into the New. Matter of fact, the very nature of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Is that not right? God does not change. Now, because we live in a different dispensation... There is the law that we're not no longer under. We're under the age of grace. But that doesn't mean that principles of the Old Testament are not applicable to our life. And so when you look in the New Testament, you, you, when you hear that Jesus uh, calls us a royal priesthood, when we are, we are considered a royal priesthood, when he has made us kings and priests, what does that mean? How, what does that mean in the New Testament? How do we find out the answer to that? Well, before I go there and show you that, I want to read Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 to you. Because a lot of times we have to understand the principle of where uh, biblical interpretation comes from and how to interpret scripture correctly. And uh, sometimes you have to look at the old in order to interpret the new. And uh, a lot of times, even though there's not much about the priesthood in the New Testament, we can look to the Old Testament and we can see the natural of the uh, priesthood in the Old Testament that translate to the spiritual in the New Testament. And you say, well, how, how do you get that? How are we able to do that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 tells us this. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Say, clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So here in Romans chapter uh, 1, verse 20, it tells us that there is an invisible realm. That there is an invisible realm uh, that is unseen to the natural eye. In that invisible realm, there are principles in that invisible realm we don't see them because we are locked into uh, we are locked into a conscious world of our senses. We are we are locked into our uh, our sight, our hearing, our taste. We're locked into the five senses that we have. And there are times when people have had encounters with God, where God has unveiled the invisible, and those have had encounters with God and have seen you know things, or God has showed them things. That is supernatural, but, but most of us, you know, can't, um, uh, has not really penetrated that rim unless we have an encounter with God. So most of us are locked into the conscious state or the natural state, and, and we're locked into our senses, and we don't know. But what the scripture here is telling us, it's telling us that God says that I'm going to give you a pattern and show you how to understand the invisible through the natural. He says that through the internal Godhead. In other words, 
what he's saying is, I am going to take the natural and reveal to you the, the Godhead, going to reveal to you the mysteries of the kingdom, going to reveal to you the invisible through the natural. In other words, God says, I'm going to take that which is natural and show you a principle of the kingdom of God that is not visibly seen, but is spiritual. Not only is it natural, but it's spiritual to our lives. In other words, I'm, it, says, it says in verse 20, he said, and it shall be clearly seen. In other words, that which is invisible shall be clearly seen in what? In that which is made, the scripture says. So God says that the way that I'm going to reveal to you the mysteries of the kingdom, the things you cannot see, is that I'm going to put my attributes in the things that are made so that you can see spiritual principles in the natural and you can apply them to your life spiritually so that you understand the principle and what that means in the natural, you can apply it to our lives in the spiritual. That is why the Old Testament is so important. Because the Old Testament is the type and shadow of what God spiritually wants to impart into our lives spiritually. What we see naturally in the Old Testament, we can apply to our lives spiritually in the New Testament. And that's exactly what God has done with the priesthood. The natural realm of the priesthood, we can look at the natural realm of the priesthood and see that God has revealed the spiritual to us through that. And so Romans 1.20 tells us, but I'm not going to stop there because uh, the Bible tells us that many things that in the, Old Te- or in the New Testament in ancient times, that many things were confirmed through the mouth of witnesses. That many things had to be confirmed through the mouth of witnesses. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to show you another passage of scripture that helps us understand the spiritual principle of understanding the spiritual through the natural. The Apostle Paul tells us that. How many know the Apostle Paul said that he had an encounter with God, that he was taking up to the third heaven, and that he had a spiritual encounter in his natural body, the encounter that he had He was reluctant to even share because it was such a powerful encounter. But here Paul confirms the the fact also of the importance of the natural and the spiritual and how they connect. Look at verse 44 and 1 Corinthians 15. It is sown a natural body. It is raised the spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written... The first Adam became the living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, right? The spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. So what is the principle of what Paul is saying here? Verse 17, he says, the first man was of the earth. He was made, right? Clearly seen by the things that are made, right? Of the dust, the second man, the Lord, was from where? He was from heaven. And so Adam was the first man. He was the natural example. Jesus was the spiritual man, the second Adam. He was the spiritual principle. And it also precludes the fact that the first man, Adam, was a living being. Jesus was a spiritual being. And it tells us that that the spiritual is not first, 
but the natural, and afterwards the spiritual is revealed. What's that telling us? That there are things and attributes that God shows us in the natural that we take and we can uh, bring over to the spiritual and apply them to our lives. And so in the book of Job, chapter 12 and verse 7, and talks about uh, the creation. Job talks about how creation, how that uh, seeing the birds and seeing the beasts of the field and the fish revealed the nature of God. He talks about that in Job 12, seven, verse 7 through 9. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 6 tells us this. Solomon tells us that part of wisdom is looking at the natural to draw spiritual principles. He says, have you considered the ant and all that it does? Solomon is dealing with the sluggard. He's dealing with the lazy man. And he tells and he's saying, hey, look at the ant. Consider the ways of the ant because the way that he perseveres is a principle that we can apply to our lives as a spiritual principle in our lives. And so the natural to reveal the spiritual truth. And so when we are called kingdom of priests, we have to go back to the Old Testament, the principles of the Old Testament, what we see in the Old Testament, what a priest is, and what it means to be priestly, and how does that apply to this New Testament. Now, we're going to go, when we get done with this, we're going to go all the way into the priesthood of Jesus. The Bible says several times that Jesus is of the priesthood of Melchizedek, right? It tells us that. Matter of fact, in Hebrews, it mentions it six times in three chapters that Jesus is uh, uh, our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what does that mean? What does Melchizedek mean? What does the order of Melchizedek mean? Well, we're going to learn that. We're going to talk about what does that mean to be from the priesthood of Melchizedek. And so Jesus is the scripture. He is called our great high priest. No one else has ever in scripture been called the great high priest. He is our great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, but not after the order of Aaron. He was the Old Testament, right? He was the Old Testament lineage to the priesthood. But it says that Jesus is after order of Melchizedek. How is that? How can Jesus step into a priesthood? Because God had very strict laws in how the priesthood was observed and how it was transferred from one priesthood to the other. And so it calls Jesus our great high priest. It says that he's after the order of Melchizedek. And you begin to think, what does that mean? How does that apply in Scripture? What does that, how does that come through? But it says we are a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests. And so it, 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 it's a principle. It's like the principle of worship. Did you know there's not very many scriptures in, in, in the Bible that talk about worship in the New Testament? Matter of fact, you can, it'd be hard to find. I couldn't find any. I don't believe there are any references to instruments even being used in worship in the New Testament. But that doesn't mean that God, because in the Old Testament, God tells us to worship Him, that He inhabits the praises of His people, that it says to praise Him among many instruments. If you read Psalms 149 and 150, you read those Psalms, He tells us to use instruments, He tells us to praise Him and worship Him, but you don't see that throughout the New Testament. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't inhabit the praise of His people or that we shouldn't praise Him in the New Testament. What is it telling us? He is using an Old Testament principle 
to, to allow us to see how we are to worship in the New Testament. In other words, the Old Testament has not been done away with. Matter of fact, I love what Pastor Keith says. He says that the Old Testament and the New Testament, that it's all one. It's a one-book book. And that's true. It is a one-book book. We know that it is. But there is a New Testament. There's no New Testament pattern for the, uh, for the priesthood. We don't see it anywhere. And here's what I think is missing in the church. We miss out on a lot of the types and shadows of the Old Testament because we have not learned how to apply many of the things that God has shown us in the Old Testament and bring them over into a New Testament covenant life. We can learn much from the Old Testament. We can learn much from God's design and all that God had done by looking at the Old Testament. Now, it's interesting, in Romans, the book of Romans, chapter 6 and verse 9, it's an interesting passage there, and uh, I want to read it to you. Romans chapter 9, verse 6, but it is not the word of God has taken, it's not that the word of God has not taken effect. For they are not all Israel who are Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Now, you say, what in the world is that saying? Well, it's saying this. It's saying that the children of God in the New Testament are not those who are just part of Israel's heritage. That we too as believers have a part in the redemption and the heritage of God that we are the seed of Abraham also through Christ Jesus. That we have the promise also. Romans 11, 11, it says this. Romans chapter 11 and verse 11. It talks about, um, it says, I say then, they have stumbled and they, and they should fall. Certainly not, but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, one of the reasons you and I were saved as Gentiles is that we might provoke, that we might provoke Israel uh, to jealousy with God and win them to Christ. That is one of the purposes of salvation is that we are to provoke or that we are to uh, provoke jealousy to the Jew so that they are moved and that their seed comes and that God, that Jesus is both king and priest over both the Jew and the Gentile. So part of our salvation experience is to provoke the Jew and the salvation. You say, well, do you have a a scriptural reference for that? I'm glad you asked. I do. The Bible says Ruth was a a, a Moabite. Is that right? Ruth was a a, a Gentile, but Naomi was a Jew. Is that right? And what did Ruth say? Ruth said, your God shall be my God, and I I will follow you. She attached herself to Naomi, even though Naomi was away from God. But when she got back to Bethlehem, the house of bread... The Bible said that, Na- that Ruth went out and began to glean the fields, and she met a man named Boaz. Boaz is a type of Christ. Is that not right? He became her kinsman, redeemer. 
And so what happened was Boaz gave her the gleaning of the field. She took the seed of the barley, the seed of the barley, the seed of the barley, and brought it to Naomi so that Naomi may be satisfied. And so the principle is this. We as believers have the seed of Jesus, the Abraham, in us also that we are to take salvation to the Jew and redemption also to the Jew. And so it is the principle that Jesus is both king and priest over both Jew and Gentile. Now hang with me. I'm trying to get someplace tonight. I don't know how successful I'll be, but I'm trying to get there. Uh, Some scriptures I may just give you just for sake of time. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 4, we begin to see that in the book of Revelation, we see that the book of Revelation is divided into three categories. That which was, that which is, and that which shall be. That is the categories of the book of Revelation. In chapter 3 of the book of Revelation, what we begin to see is, is that we begin to see that the mentioning of the seven churches. Now these seven churches represent three things in scripture. They represent one, they were real churches. All seven of them were churches that existed at that time. They were a real and they did exist. Number two, that all seven of these churches represent a dispensational time in church history. They all represent a certain period of time From the time of John till now, they represented a dispensation. Uh, The church at Laodicea, uh, we believe, represents this church age, this age of grace. And so we can look at what it says about Laodicea, and we can see that there's a lot of spiritual principles that are there. Thirdly, it represents the personal, and and these churches can can be personally and spiritually applied to our lives. In other words, they can be added to our lives. I said all of that to say this. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 4, the Bible says this, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now, what I want to talk about tonight is I want to, I want to some spiritual principles from the priesthood of the Old Testament, some of the garments of the priesthood, that the garment, the spiritual, that the priesthood wore, that we in the New Testament can apply them as spiritual principles in our life that we need to put on, we need to be kings and priests of the New Testament, we need to put on what they put on in the natural, we have to put on as kings and priests in the spiritual. So when we look at the Old Testament priest and how he was garmented, how he was dressed, is the principle of how he went before God. In other words, in order for him to go before God, he had to put on certain garments that represented certain things which allowed him access to God. In the New Testament, we as kings and priests have to spiritually put on what the Old Testament priests put on naturally, we put it on spiritually, and when we put these garments on, we have an access to God, and we begin to walk as kings and priests 
of the new covenant and have spiritual breakthrough just like the priests of the Old Testament were allowed to come before God, we spiritually can enter in and come before God because we have dressed ourselves spiritually right to approach God. That's good stuff, y'all. And God wastes no experience, right? I mean, the Bible tells us things like this. We know that he uses a natural. He said, for he has given us a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Is that not what it says? He didn't actually give us a garment. It is a spiritual principle. He has given us a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. The Bible tells us that we have put on, as believers, we have put on the robes of righteousness when we come to Christ. Is that not true? We have dressed ourselves. We have garmented ourselves. Those garments represent spiritual principles in our life. And so I want to take us to a couple places of Scripture because I want to get to this priest tonight. And so let's talk about the spiritual garments. In Romans chapter 16 and verse 15, I'm going to go fast. If you want to follow me, you can, but I'm going to try to go um, because these Scriptures I can't. They're not Scriptures that I can just skip, but I want to be able to read them to you. Now, referring to spiritual nakedness, why we need spiritual garments, Romans chapter 16 and verse 15, the Bible tells us, Behold, I come as a thief, uh, as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Y'all hear that? In other words, what the Bible is telling us, that Jesus will come as a thief. And when he comes... Blessed is he who has watched and has kept his garments, has put his garments on. And when he has put on his garments, he shall not go before God in shame. That tells us that the garments of God, these garments of the New Testament priesthood, are spiritual. Back to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14, talking about the Laodicean church and talking about uh, that lukewarm church that the Bible talks about. And in chapter 3 and verse 14, it says, And the angel of the church of Laodicea. So we know that it's speaking of the church of Laodicea, which represents the last day's church, this age church. Let's look at verse 17. It says, Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Is that right? Verse 18 this is the counsel that is given to those that walk in the nakedness of, uh, in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with salve, eye salve, that you may see. In other words, what's he telling the church in the last days? You say you're okay. I'm saying that what you think is righteousness is not righteousness. That you are poor, blind, and naked. But you must put on the right garments in order to stand before me in righteousness. God says that the last day's church is a church that has the propensity to walk around in nakedness and not know that they are in nakedness. But God says there is a garment that you have to put on and better not be caught without that garment. It's an incredible passage of Scripture. It's amazing. The natural. And so uh, we see in the natural. And so uh, turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22 
And I'm going to get into this. I'm going to get here. I'm just laying this garment foundation because you have to know that it is a spiritual principle in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 22 and beginning in verse 11. Talking about spiritual nakedness. Talk about covering. Talking about covering for ourselves. Verses 1 and 2 in uh, uh, Matthew chapter 22. It says, and Jesus answered and said and spoke to them again by parable. Now we know that a lot of times that Jesus spoke in parables. Uh, and that what are parables? Parables are the same thing. They're, they're stories. They're, they're, they're stories that are told that convey a spiritual principle. So we know that this story in Matthew 22 is a, is a parable. And it said, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. So we know that this parable is about a wedding. It's about a marriage. It's about uh, the marriage of a son. We, it's not hard to interpretate this, to know that one day Jesus is coming for his church. There's going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb, the church, uh, Christ, who is the husband. We, the church, is the bride. Now Matthew here tells us that this is a parable. There is a king, the kingdom of heaven is like, again, there's that principle, the kingdom, a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. How I many you know there's a wedding day coming for the church? Praise God. We have a wedding day to me. Verse 11, but when the king came to see the guest, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the servant, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, if you don't have the right garment on spiritually, you cannot get in to the wedding banquet of the Lord. You hearing what I'm saying? You have to be dressed right. You have to spiritually be dressed. You have to spiritually be dressed. And so he was cast into outer darkness. What this tells me is that through the scripture, you will see that as there was in the Old Testament, there was a process in relationship with God Also in the New Testament, there is a process for relationship with God. We too, spiritually in the New Testament, there is a process in our relationship with God. Let me give you a scripture. The book of James chapter 4 says this. It's a very simple principle. It's simplistic, but it's very authoritative. It says this. It says, draw nigh to God and God will draw nigh to you. Right? That's a great principle. What is it saying? As you draw nigh to God, God draw nigh to you. That is a process. In other words, you have to do something. When you draw nigh to God, he will draw nigh to you. That's a process. What did the Old Testament priests do? There was a process to get into the presence of God. They would go from the outer court into the inner court. And then from the inner court, once a year, into the Holy of Holies. What is that? It is a process of drawing nigh to God. And when they drew nigh to God, when they got, when they had the right garments on, when they went through the right process, they stepped into the Holy of Holies. And as they drew nigh to God, they got there. God then showed up and drew nigh to them. Isn't that a great principle to have? 
It tells us this, that God, there is a process in approaching God. There's a principle in approaching God. In other words, that in order to stand before God, you have to have the right garments on. Now we're going somewhere. Now, how do we establish this type in the Old Testament? And the meaning of, you know, uh, we have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. We can't just have our opinion. How many know Scripture will interpret itself if you let it? It will interpret itself. You don't have to. Turn to Revelation chapter 19. So what is the meaning of the wedding garment? What does that wedding garment mean? Revelation chapter 19. I'm moving fast. I'm moving fast. I've got to get somewhere. I'm leaving on a jet plane. Don't know when I'll be back again. Romans chapter 19. The Bible tells us in verse 7. It talks about the wedding garment. What does that mean? What does the wedding garment mean? Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Right? Who's the, who's the, who is the Lamb? Who is the Lamb? Christ. Who is the bride? We the church. Right? And she has made herself ready. And verse 8. And to her it was granted to the arraignment of fine linen, clean and bright, For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So it tells us that she's dressed in fine linen, clean and bright, or uh, some may say clean and glory, or clean and and light, whatever it may see in some translations. Uh, And it says that that linen is what? The righteousness of the saints. The righteous acts of the saints. Is that right? That's what it tells us there in the scripture. And so it tells us that these garments were required for the feast. That what are the wedding garments? It tells us there that the fine linen that the bride had adorned herself is, is the garments that are the wedding garments for the feast. Fine linen. How is, are we to approach God? How is the fine linen is the righteousness of of God. Now turn to Isaiah 61. Let's go a little deeper. Isaiah 61. Hang with me. I'm moving fast. I'm moving fast. Hang with me. Isaiah chapter 61. This is the scripture that Jesus used when he stepped into ministry in Matthew, right? He read from the scroll and he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news, uh, the good news to the poor, right? That's how Jesus began his ministry. Look at verse 3. The Bible tells us to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes and oil for joy of mourning, the garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness. So we know that in Isaiah 61, it's talking about garments. It's talking about garments. If you look down to verse 6, it says, but you shall be named the priest of the Lord. And they shall call you the servants of God, and you shall eat of the riches of the Gentiles. This is a prophecy of the New Testament. Jesus fulfilled this when he got up to speak. And in verse 3, it tells us that there are garments that are to be put on. Verse 6 tells us that there are garments for the priesthood, to be priests unto the Lord. Now look at verse 10. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful In my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of what? Salvation. And has covered me with the robe of righteousness. 
right? As a bride that decks herself with ornaments, as a bride adorn herself with jewels. Now, what is it talking about here? What is it telling us? It telling, it's telling us that, that for there are two garments that represent the wedding garments. There are two garments that we have to put on spiritually that gives us access to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, uh, this is interesting because uh, we'll quickly go to Exodus chapter 28. As you're going to Exodus chapter 28, uh, if you guys back there would put up the um, would put up the priest, the picture of the priest uh, with the uh, with just the linen garments on, that just have the linen garments. Uh, just show the the uh, priest with the linen garments on there. Exodus chapter twenty-eight and verse one. Now this is the garments of the priesthood. Now that we understand that garments are important and that they are to be worn, they're a spiritual principle. They're spiritual garments we put on. Now let's talk about the priestly garments. Exodus 28 gives us an exposition of what the priestly garments were, what they looked like, what they were dressed like. Now there you see, these are, these are priests. Those there are just priests. Uh, those are uh, Levites. Uh, they are courtyard priests. They are priests that are dressed in linen. And that linen that they have on is... Is, is the garments in which they are to wear. They are garments of salvation and garments of righteousness. Now let me, let me just take it a little further and show you uh, where, what I mean. In, in Exodus chapter 28, the Bible says, Now take Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as priest. Now hear God saying, Take Aaron and his sons, separate them to me priests, Aaron, Aaron's sons, Naboth, Abihu, Eliezer, and uh, uh, Adamar, these are the five sons of Aaron, are to be the priesthood. Now, it's interesting that God uses the number of five. In the New, in the New Testament, the number of priesthood, or the number of New, uh, the New Testament priesthood, is the five gifts of the given to the church, which is the apostle, prophet, teacher, pastor, evangelist. Five, uh, five grace, number five is used. And it said, make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for the glory and for beauty. In other words, make these garments. These garments uh, that are being made are for the glory, the holiness, and the beauty of God. Okay? That these are holy garments. They're, glo- they're garments that represent God's glory and represents God's beauty. Now, in the book of Genesis chapter 1, we see that when God made man, the Bible said he made man in, God said, let us make man in our image. Is that not what he said? He first said in verse 26, he said, let us make man in our likeness. Okay? Then in verse 27, he, he, God says, for I have made man in my image. So the Godhead says, make man in my likeness. In verse 27 of Genesis 1:27, God says, make him in my image. The likeness represents the natural man. In other words, Adam was made in the natural to reveal the whole Godhead. But Adam was also a spiritual being which was made in the image of God. His spiritual nature was made in the image of God. 
And what was that spiritual nature? What did Adam's spiritual nature was? Well, Psalms 104, verses 1 and 2, it tells us this. How was Adam dressed? How was he presented? How was he made in the image of God? What was the image of God that he had? Psalms 104. Let me get there. Psalms 104 and verses 1 and 2, it says, David here is talking about, he said, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. Now listen, look what it says. You are clothed with honor and majesty, right? And it says, Who cover yourself with light and with a garment who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. And so, what is the image of God is what? It is glory. The image of God is light. The image of God. So, Adam was made in the likeness of the Godhead. But the image of God was that he's, his appearance was that of glory. Was that of, of, of beauty. Was that of honor. It was his glory surrounded him. And so that's why the Bible says in the book of Romans that, he, that we all have sinned and come short of the what? The glory of God, not the likeness of God. Because we are made in the image of God, which is God's glory and likeness. That was lost in the garden. The glory was lost in the garden. But we are still made in the likeness of God, right? All right, let's take it just one step further. In Genesis chapter 2, when Adam, we see this uh, about Adam, and it says, one time he's naked, and it says that he's not ashamed. And then the second time it tells us he's naked and he's ashamed. Look at Genesis chapter, uh, chapter 2 and verse uh, 25. It, it says this, it says, uh, verse 25, it says, and well, verse 24, put the context. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, and the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Okay? So here, they're naked and not ashamed. Now look at chapter 3 and verse 7. Chapter 3 and verse 7 says this. It says... Uh, then the eyes of both of them, this is after the fall, the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings, right? So in one picture, they're naked and don't know they're naked. When they fall, then they recognize that they're naked. And in verse 9, it says, then the Lord called to Adam and said, where are you? And what did he say? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Now, this is interesting. In chapter 2, the word naked there comes from the Hebrew, which means aram. It means to be covered with honor and glory. It means that in chapter 2, they were naked, but they didn't know they were naked because they were covered with the honor and glory and majesty of God. In chapter 3, it's a different Hebrew word. It's the word aron or iron, um, oram in the Hebrew or in the Hebrew, and it means this: it means to have nothing to be exposed. So in chapter two, they're covered with the glory of God and did not know they were naked. In chapter three, after the fall, they all the glory of God had lifted from them, and now they recognize that they are naked. Isn't it a powerful scripture? 
Because Psalms 104 tells us that the image of God is glory and light and His Shekinah glory, all of that, His majesty, that is the image of God. And so from Adam to Moses, all died in the flesh. But what did God do? God made provision for the holy, for the glory, and the beauty. What was the provision for man? God made garments to put on the priesthood. And when the priesthood put the garments on, they were now covered for the people who walked in nakedness and darkness. Isn't that good? God loved. In other words, what did God do? He put it back, he put God, his glory back on the priesthood. And now the priesthood represented the people. And when they would go into the Holy of Holies, they now were covered. And they represented the nakedness of humanity. And now provision was made to come before God. And God's grace could be given again to the people. Woo! That's good stuff. And now it has been passed down to us. Because it's no longer a physical priesthood. But we now all individually have become kings and priests before our God. And through the blood of Jesus and the garments of righteousness and the garments we put on, we now can come before God and be covered by the blood of Jesus and have access to God again. Woo, that's good news to me. Thank you, Jesus, for your good news. Now I have to hurry because I know we're about out of time. But I'm going to hurry. The garments of the priesthood. Linen. Now, if, if you'll put up, Adam, put up the, um, uh, well, Exodus, let's, let's look, continue to look here in Exodus chapter 28. And uh, as we look here, we begin to see something. The garments consisted in the natural uh, one with another. Put up the whole priest there, picture of the whole priest, and it's all, all, of, his, all of his dressed up garment. All right? Now, what did we say? What did we say the righteousness of God was? That the linen was the righteousness. Is that right? If you will see that on the priest, underneath everything, you see that white garment. That was a linen robe. That was a white linen robe. All right, remember when we read in Revelation that the marriage garments, that those that you could not be caught without was the marriage garments or the wedding garments? What were those garments? Well, the white linen robe there is the garments, and it, it, it covered the shoulders all the way down to the ankle. It covered the whole man. How many know the righteousness of God covers the whole man? And it's so it is a garment that represents... The linen represents righteousness from the shoulders to the ankles. And, uh, and, and then, two, there was what was called um, uh, the blue, uh, the ephod. Uh, the robe is the blue. That is what's called the ephod. We'll talk about that in just a second. That is the ephod. And so, notice this. That the robe, the white garment, and the blue garment was put over the priest over his head. That represented that God put that on him. That it came from above. It came from on top. It came from over. So righteousness and the robe and the blue robe, which represents the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that in a moment. The ephod, both came over his head. Right, God's righteousness, 
The Holy Spirit that comes in us comes from God. It comes from above. Is that right? So that's what the priesthood put on. And then he has the, uh, of course, he has the garments. Um, you can see the other, we'll get into the other garments a little bit later. He has the, the head garment. But here's what I wanted you to see. Look at verse 42 in the book of Exodus 28. Look what it says here. There's an interesting passage of scripture. It says, and you shall make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness. They shall reach from the waist to the thighs. Now underneath that white robe there uh, of the priesthood, put the priest back up. Underneath that white garment is what is called, uh, there is these priestly garments that are called breeches or trousers. Put those up if you have, put them up so you can see what they are. That is what the priest wore under that garment. That is his breeches. That's his trousers. Okay? Now, in verse 42, it tells us that the priest is to put that on. It's the undergarment. It's the breeches. This garment, um, and then you put on the white linen garment over top of that, which is the righteousness of God. You put that over. And so... um, Now, Isaiah 61 said this. He gave us the order of that garment. He said what? He said the linen is what? Is the righteousness of God. Is that not right? And it said it's the garment of salvation. Okay, there's the garment of salvation. And then there's the garment of righteousness. Okay? Now, John 12.32 tells us this. The breeches was the only part of the priest's garment... That was put on, purposely put on from below. He had to step into the breeches and pull them up, right? They're the only garment that comes from below. The rest of the garments come from above. So, what does that mean? What does those breeches represent? Well, the Bible says this in John chapter 12 about Jesus. Now, we understand that those garments, the white garments, represent salvation. And they represent righteousness. The breeches represent salvation. The white garment represents righteousness. Okay? And so in John 12, 32, it says, Jesus said this, If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. What did Jesus do? Jesus lowered, the Bible said he was made lower than the angels. He came to the earth. And he died for each of us. Is that not right? And he was brought down to the lower depths of the earth and became man. Right? And died for us. He came and it said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. In other words, he left his glory up there, came down to the earth, died for us. And so what happens is, those breaches represent our salvation. Why? Because you have to step into salvation. You have to make the choice to be saved. You have to make the choice to put on the garment of salvation. You have to step forward and believe and confess with your mouth that Christ was raised from the dead. Believe on him. It's our part. Our part is to step into salvation and to believe in salvation. So salvation is that which we step into, and when we step into it, we pull up and we are covered by the blood of Jesus. The breeches represented our salvation. That's what the trousers represented. But once we're saved, the Bible says, now we become what? 
clothed with righteousness and the white garment comes over top of the white breeches which means now we're no longer naked from the waist up but we have been covered by the righteousness of God and now we have on the proper wedding garments according to Isaiah 61 what a, and, and, and Revelation the proper wedding garments are the white linen garments that are the garments that you what is it that you need to get in to heaven? What is it when you die? You need salvation, right? And you need to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Whoo! That's the wedding garment. That's what the man came in and did not have the proper garments on. You can't walk in expecting God's righteousness to cover your nakedness when you have not made a decision to put on salvation yourself. God's righteousness won't cover just nakedness. The righteousness of God comes over the breaches and covers our decision for salvation. Woo, that's good stuff. Praise God. Gets you excited, doesn't it? About what Jesus has done for us. And so, now we come into this place. And so the linen robe, the next garment, came above. That's the picture of righteousness. Now, you say, well, how, how do I know that's true? Well, I'm glad you asked because if you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, just going to help prove this point because you've got to have a scriptural reference for it because we can't have man's opinion. Is that right? Chapter 5, verse 21. And uh, it says this. It says, for he made him to be no, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Right? He came to earth, became sin for us, that we might become what? The righteousness of God. That we might become the righteousness of God, the linen righteousness of God. He has put on us. What he did covered us with righteousness. And so every priest had to step into that garment. He had to have the desire to step into that garment. And then God sends the robe of righteousness into our lives. And so that's God's pattern for salvation and can you believe it? He gave that 3,500 years ago. Isn't that awesome? I mean, 3,500 years ago, God gave that principle. What is it? You're drawing nigh to God. You're putting on the garment. You're putting on the garment of salvation. He puts on the robe of right. What are you doing? You're drawing nigh to God. And he's, as you put the salvation britches on, he puts on the robe of righteousness. You draw nigh to him, and he draw nigh to you. Okay, well. I got it. <laughs> Praise God. Hallelujah. In other words, if you don't put the breeches on, you're going to die in your iniquity. You're going to die in your iniquity. Now, Exodus chapter 28 and verse 31 talks about the ephod, the robe of the ephod. Now, the robe of the ephod is that blue robe that you see right there. Now, uh, uh, you got a picture of that, Adam, by itself. Just bring up the blue ephod. And the ephod, the blue ephod, is interesting. Now, how many of you have heard the statement that when the priests went into the Holy of Holies, that uh, they would tie a string to his foot, and if he died, they'd pull him out? Well, that's not true. That's folklore. That's not true. And you say, well, how do you know it's not true? Because I read the Bible, and, and Leviticus chapter 16 tells us the garments that the priests are to wear into the Holy of Holies. Do you know what the priests are to wear into the Holy of Holies? The linen garments. 
They do not have this robe of the ephod on, which has the bells and the promagants at the end of it. Uh, that is not to enter into the Holy of Holies. That garment is to be worn in the holy place, not the Holy of Holies. And so when the priest once a year would go into the, the Holy of Holies, he would wear the linen garments, his wedding garments. Why? Because he's applying the blood of the nation on the altar, on the golden altar. So he had to have the wedding garments on. He had to have on the right garments to go in. He could not wear the blue garments represent, I'm going to tell you what that means here in just a second. But that's, and so in, he, had to, he had to be dressed right to go in. Now, there are three levels of maturity that we see in the New Testament. And uh, because the Bible calls it fruit. And there's a passage of scripture that says that we reap 30, 60, and 100 fold, right? You've seen that passage of scripture? And it's talking about fruit. It's talking about our fruit. It's talking about levels of maturity. How the, the ability to achieve. The ability to uh, 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 have fruitfulness. And so the blue robe that was put on... Um, all priests wore the breeches. All priests wore the linen garments. All priests wore the crown or the bonnet or whatever they called it. All priests wore that. But not every priest wore the blue robe. The blue robe was only worn by the high priest who went into the holy place. And so it was for the high priest who, in other words, what's it saying? When we see the outer court... That is for the priest. That is for those who have the white linen garments on that I showed you before. But to go into the holy place, you had to put on the blue robe. And the blue robe, the ephod, represents the Holy Spirit. It represents the Holy Spirit that comes on us. It is the Holy Spirit. Now, the outer court represents the Old Testament. Uh, the, the sacrifice at the at the uh, altar where the blood was shed, that's Old Testament. But the greater level, you go into another level when you walk into the holy place, you're now into another level of relationship with God. That represents the church age. That is a picture of the church age. And into the holy of holies represents the kingdom that is to come, that is the millennial kingdom. And so I'm not going to get into all of that. I just want you to know that that robe was only worn by the high priest into the holy place. It represents the garment of the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, it is the garment that, that, that separates the high priest from the priest. Only the high priest could wear that. It's a, it's a robe of separation. Listen, the Holy Spirit is a robe of separation in our life. The Holy Spirit leads and guides us in the greater truth. Is that not right? The Holy Spirit becomes the garment that we wear when we want to go into another level with God. And so the blue garment, the ephod, represents the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm almost done. I'm getting to this place. This is, I'm getting to the crescendo. And so it represents the Holy Spirit. It's the garment that have access to the holy place. It means full maturity. Really, uh, what some uh, theologians say, that it really represents the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
And, and I'll show you that to you in just a moment in Scripture, how it represents the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But the holy place represents the church age. Now, and it also came over the head, right? You put that on. In other words, the Holy Spirit comes from God. And they would put it on over the head also. And so, and so it, it came on. Now, if you look at the bottom of that ephod, that robe, ephod, that there were on the bottom of that, you will see that there are bells, and you will see that there are uh, a stitched garment that represented, those were the picture of what the scripture calls, in, in Exodus 28, they are called pomegranates, right? So there's a pomegranate and a bell, a pomegranate and a bell, a pomegranate and a bell, okay? And so you have this uh, pomegranate that represents uh, fruit, right? The pomegranate is a fruit, and it, it's a fruit that is a, a diverse fruit because it has many seeds, all right? And then you have a bell, which is representative of noise. It's a represent, it is, it's a picture of the anointing. So it's the, and I'm going to show you in just a second how that applies. It is a garment that the bell is the sign that the Holy Spirit is present. See, it's the noise See, when the Holy Spirit is present and working in the New Testament, how do we know the Holy Spirit is working? Because there are signs, wonders, and miracles. In other words, the action, the noise, the action. So when you hear the bells of the garment, of the ephod, of the blue robe, it lets you know that the high priest is present and that the bells represent the noise or represent the signs, wonders, and miracles. They represent the anointing that comes with the Holy Spirit or the garment that is put on. The pomegranate represent the fruit. The fruit is tied to the anointing because the pomegranates represent what we call in the book of Galatians the fruit of the Spirit, right? They represent the fruit of the Spirit. And so they're significant. Now, the same time, there's the scripture teaching that, the, that when you have lists of things in the New Testament... My, my Bible college professor told me this, my survey professor, he told me this, that when you have a list of things that you see in the scripture, such as the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, kind of like, you know, you, know, you know the list, he said the one that's listed first is the primary, is always the primary. If you go home and you pull out your bottle of shampoo out of your shower and you begin to look at the ingredients, they always list the ingredients from the highest content first to the lowest, right? They still do that today. And so the principle here is that when you read about the fruit of the Spirit, what is the first fruit of the Spirit? Love, right? The first fruit of the Spirit is love. After love comes the rest of the fruits of the Spirit. Now, the bell represents the evidence that the presence or the Holy Spirit is there. The garment is on the high priest. The noise lets them know that the presence of the high priest is there, the noise. Now, here, if the pomegranate represents the fruit of the Spirit and the bell represents the gifts of the Spirit or the signs, wonders, miracles, then what you have is, is that those bells can ring with those pomegranates in between and it makes a pleasant sound, right? What would happen if you took those pomegranates out and you took those, those pomegranates out and you started ringing those bells all together, it would become clinging 
and it would not sound good. There would be no rhythm in it, and it would sound awful. Now, here's the point that I'm making, and this is where I'm going to close. Do we have reference of that in Scripture? We do. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about the nine gifts of the Spirit. Matter of fact, it's often referred to as the bell chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 talks about the signs of the Spirit, prophecy, tongues, and tongues of interpretation, and other spiritual gifts, right? So you have chapter 12, it's a bell chapter. Chapter 14 is a bell chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is the chapter on love. So you have signs, wonders, fruits of the Spirit, gifts of the Spirit, you have the chapter on love, and then you have another bell chapter of the operating of the gifts of the Spirit. So you have love in between, because the Bible says that though men may speak with tongues, if you have not love, then it's like a clanging cymbal, and it becomes irritating to those that listen and those that hear. And so... It's an amazing thing because what has to happen is is that we have to learn to love and love has to be between us all because, Adam, if you'll come, love has to be between us all because there are many bells that are on that garment and if you'll look, some of them are the same and some of them are different. That's the diversity of the gifts of the Spirit. But, You may have operated in one gift of the Spirit, and you may operate in the same gift of the Spirit, but what can't happen is that we become jealous of one another's gifts. There always has to be love between us. Because if there's not love between us, if there's not love between us, then we become jealous of the spiritual gifts that operate in the body And if we become jealous of one another, then the gifts of the Spirit, the signs, wonders, and miracles that God wants to release becomes clanging, and it becomes noise, and it's not fruitful, and it doesn't get anywhere. We have to learn to honor the gifts that are in each other. And no greater picture, stand with me if you would, no greater picture of that. If you will go home and read the book of Acts chapter 3, I never seen the unity that was in this chapter. After the day of Pentecost, Peter and John were headed to the temple to worship, and the Bible said they ran into a man that was begging at the temple. And the Bible says a couple of things that is very interesting. It mentions a lot of things about unity. It said, and when they Peter and John came to the temple, a sign that they were going together, that was unity. The Bible said that when the man looked up, or when the man saw, he saw John and he saw Peter. Unity. He saw them together. Peter looks at the man and says, look upon us. Right? He didn't say, look upon me. He said, look upon us. Another sign of unity. But then, after all of that, Peter turns to the man and he said, silver and gold have I none, but that which I have... That which I have, that's what's been given to me, that which is in me, I give to you, arise and walk. And he laid hands on him and he healed him. 
And the Bible said that John and Peter together walked with him. And when they saw him, they saw him with Peter and John. Now, Peter was the bell. Right? John was the pomegranate. Because I believe, I don't have scripture reference, but I believe that as John was praying for the healing of that man, or Peter was, I believe John stood back and began to pray and began to love and began to be the pomegranate, the fruit of love, while John was demonstrating the power of God. Why didn't John say, hey, Peter, who gives you the right to pray for him? I want to pray for him. I got the gift of healing too. After all, I'm the disciple that laid on the breast of Jesus, who was called the disciple that Jesus loved. You get what I'm saying? There has to be this unity that comes. Two men, two men working together, love among them, putting on the garments. And we all have to put the garments on. And so let's just ask God as we pray and get ready to leave tonight. I want us to pray and ask God to put over us his garment of righteousness. That he put on the garment of the Holy Spirit, the ephod. Lord, let us put on your Holy Spirit tonight. Let us put on that garment that we may enter into the holy place. That we may go from the outer court to the inner court. That we may go from where the outer court is, just our salvation, just our washing. Let us now go into the holy place. The place where you're... Where you're your candle abras are, where the menorah is, the light of God, where the showbread is, where the incense of prayer, where, there, where there's greater, greater revelation, greater relationship. The Holy Spirit is a light unto our path. The Holy Spirit is a picture that we pray in the Spirit. That is the incense of our prayers. Let us put on the garment, the robe, the ephod, May our gift be demonstrated, but demonstrated next to love. Let us put on our priestly garments tonight that we may, in the New Testament, represent the priesthood as it was in the old. Cover us, O God. We thank you and love you tonight. We thank you that you have washed us in the blood of Jesus, that you have strengthened us. We put on the garments of the spiritual priesthood that we may walk in righteousness and purity tonight. Cleanse our hearts that we may be whole. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Thank you for joining us for River Valley Community Church's podcast. If you feel led to give, you can click on the donation link in the description or visit our website at rivervalleymadison.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe or share with your friends. Thanks again for listening. God bless you.